very briefly. Just want to give you a trajectory tonight, and next week we'll finish Exodus. So, so last last sermons next week. Tim, mark it. We finish. We well, Lord willing, we'll finish Exodus. Um, we won't have evening worship in July. We have we have family fellowship, family fellowship on Sunday evenings in July, and then in August, if the Lord doesn't come. We'll start um, a series on Romans in the evenings. So if you want to read ahead like me, that's where we're headed. Our passage is what is printed, but I'm only going to read from chapter 40. So if you want to turn over there and before we read from Exodus 40, let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you so much for your holy and inspired word. We do not have to wonder if you love us, if you care about us, if you are good, if you are sovereign and powerful, for we know that you are these things, for you have written to us in these pages and testified to it in our hearts by your spirit. So come again for the sake of our Lord Jesus. And write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Exodus 40, I'm going to read verses 1 through 33. This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. You shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles in the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron, his sons, washed their hands and their feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Amen. So far, God's holy and inspired word, may he add his blessing to it. You'll remember where we are. Um, Chapters 35 through 40 of Exodus are these final climactic scenes of the book. Everything so far has ushered us to this point. Finally, the Lord's worship in Israel is established. Back in chapters 35 and 36, we looked at last time, we saw the people bring the necessary materials together. We saw God gift Bezalel and Aholiab for the task at hand, just as he had promised to do. And now, back in 36 verse 8, through this portion of chapter 40, we see the tabernacle constructed. And while we have touched on it um, a little bit already, tonight we're really going to take a look at at the glaring attribute of these particular chapters simply that they are mostly a word-for-word repeat of chapters 25 through 31. Why does Exodus repeat itself in these last chapters? Why does God repeat a portion of his word here in this latter portion of his word? I'm going to posit this to you, that, that in these final chapters of Exodus, the Lord is proclaiming to us truths about himself. These chapters are not just historical record. If they were just historical record, you know, chapter 35 would say, and they did everything that was in chapters 25 through 31, period, and then the Lord descended and we'd be done. It's not just historical record about how the people implemented what the Lord instructed. God is preaching to us. He is declaring himself to his people, even in these repetitive chapters of Exodus. And, and for our use tonight, these, these chapters have three standout features that proclaim to us something about God. First, we'll look at the fact that they are repetitive. That in and of itself preaches. There's also a unique element included, that while they're repetitive, there's a little bit of new material. And we'll look at what that is. And thirdly, that very last verse in 40.33, we'll see that, that this is the end. Before the, before the glory cloud comes down, it's the end of Moses' work, but not really. So they're repetitive, there's a unique element to them, and it's the end, but not quite yet. First, thinking about this idea of repetition without going all the way back through it, you, you can, I mean, if you've read through Exodus at any point, most of us will get through Exodus on a Bible reading plan. We might not make it through Leviticus, but Exodus is easy to get through. It's the same material. 
Um, and really, as we work our way from chapter 25 to the end in chapter 40, there's four lists. God gives four lists to the people. 25 through 31 are um, the specifications. Moses, this is the tabernacle that I'm going to have you build, and I'm going to give you all the details right now. And we've spent much time on those specifications, which is why we're pulling back and not spending so much time on um, all of those individual things all over again. When we get to chapter 36, after they've come back from the golden calf incident, there, there's a list of what they gather together. And then you can look, if you just flip back a couple of pages into like chapter 37, the, the second list that God gives them is a list of manufacture. It's what they build. So just your chapter headings, even the, the section headings starting in 37, they make the ark, they make the table, they make the lampstand, they make the altar of incense, they make the bronze basin, they make the materials for the tabernacle, right? They make the priestly garments. All of this is just the same material from before, reiterated in the pr past tense as something that they have now done as God instructed them. In chapter 40, we get to list 3 and 4, which is simply where the Lord tells Moses how to erect the tabernacle. And then beginning there in verse 17 of our passage, Moses actually constructing the tabernacle. So it's these repetitive lists of all that God wants them to do so that they might worship him properly. And I, I, what is it preaching to us? What is God declaring about himself by repeating himself so much? Is simply this, he is declaring his immutability. He is declaring that beautiful doctrine of the character of God that he does not change. And I want you to think about this with me. That God doesn't change. Now you could, you know, there's some proof text we could go to to highlight this doctrine. Numbers 23 is where it says that God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. The more popular one that may be kind of floating around in your head somewhere is Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, where the Lord speaks of himself saying, for I, the Lord, do not change. Now the question you're all asking is, okay, but what does immutability have to do with this repetition? God's immutability is something that is highlighted here in the repetition because wouldn't we expect from a human perspective that after God had declared the specifications of his worship and then his people had rebelled against him and transgressed against his law and gone off their own way doing their own things, we would never expect God to come back to the same merciful, loving stance that he had toward them before, would we? Surely they have put him off forever now, right? No. <laughs> For our God does not change. Alec Motier writes it this way, Nothing, of course, justifies our sin. That's important to get across. Nothing justifies our sin. But not even the greatest rebellions of God's people can deflect the Lord from His purpose. That, that He intended for them to come to Him and worship in this way. And their sin and transgression and their, their, their departing from Him for a time doesn't change His intention in the end. And it may seem obvious to us to say, yes, of course, our sin does not change who God is. And we may be good at articulating that and agreeing with that as, as, as a, a positive statement. But, but don't you feel this sometimes? We commit some sin 
That we fall into a season of, of disobedience of some kind and it begins to pain us and shame us. And sometimes these can last for long seasons. Sometimes things that we've done in our past will haunt us to the future. And while we may be able to say that yes, at one point I have enjoyed a sense of precious love for God, in our guilt and in our shame, now all of a sudden we fear that God will reject my approach if I dare draw near to Him. Don't you feel this? And it is hard to move forward toward the Lord when we feel this way. And this is why God repeats Himself, not just for us, but for them there too, to remind them, hey, I'm still the same. I'm still the God that will call you to Myself and so he repeats all of the, the gospel things that are found in the tabernacle. The bloody altar and, and the, the basin of washing that preach about God's intention to save his people from their sins. He repeats himself so that the people will not forget. God's immutability ministers to us in seasons like what I've just described. And, and, and for the purpose of, of teasing it out a little further... A.W. Tozer has a wonderful little book on the attributes of God. And as he speaks about this characteristic of our God, that he is unchangeable, he writes this. In this world where men forget us and change their attitude toward us as their private interests dictate, as they revise their opinion of us for the slightest cause, is it not a source of wondrous strength to know that the God with whom we have to do changes not? That his attitude toward us now is the same as it was in eternity past and will be in eternity to come. He goes on. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Listen, today, this moment, God feels toward his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, toward the fallen, toward the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for them. God does not change. He cannot change, in fact. He must be true to himself, always. Always. Tozer says later, God never changes moods or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. His attitude towards sin is now the same as it was when he drove out the sinful man from the Garden of Eden. And his attitude toward the sinner is the same as when he stretched forth his hands and cried, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He will never change. And that brings comfort to us now, beloved, because it, it will uphold us while, while everything around us is changing. While you yourself feel like you can't stop changing, that, that you, you, you're consistent one day and inconsistent the next, that you're warm toward God yesterday and cold toward Him today, what can we possibly do? We must Find rest in our God who cannot change. 
and is always the same. He is always merciful and gracious and kind and compassionate. And he will never forsake those for whom Christ has died. And you take comfort in that. Take comfort in this beautiful doctrine of our God's immutability. Because of this unchanging character of God, His call to His people to worship Him, we see it here with the Israelites, it it never changes. That's why when they come back, He gets back into the rhythm that He was planning for them to begin with. Puts them back into the program, as it were. He always gives His people a means to come to Him and worship, a means to commune with Him. And and these means... um, differ from Old Testament to New Testament, right? The way they worshiped God in the Old Testament is not the way that we're called to worship God in the New Testament. And the proof of that is simply that we're in a building and not a tent, right? That, that we're not in Israel in the temple, but we're in Cleveland in a church building, right? It's not the same as it used to be. But the principle of his worship that's peppered throughout chapters 39 and 40 always remains the same. It's this Inside all of this repetitive material, there is a unique refrain that comes into play. A single line that's uttered many, many times. Look back, just just glance back to 39. Look at verse 7. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Or chapter 39, jump down to the, the end in verse 43. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. And then what we have read tonight already, verse 16 of chapter 40. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And verse 32, when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. You know, in contrast, it's, it's important to consider this phrase peppered throughout these chapters compared to the, the event of the golden bowl back in chapter 32. God will have His people come in the manner that He prescribes. But in chapter 32, we saw that the people came in the manner that they desired. Where's this Moses He's up with that God that's called us out of Egypt. We're we're bored, we're restless, we're impatient. We'll worship Him the way that we think is right. The way that we design of our own imaginations. They failed to wait on God's instructions and they designed a worship of their own imagination. But, But now what do they do? What characterizes their work? What characterizes their preparation to worship God? After they have seen their sin... After they have seen the mercy of God, what is their approach to Him? Over and over and over again, especially in in chapter 40, beginning in 17 through the end. Just as God instructed Moses. Just as the Lord commanded Moses. Just as God told them to do. It occurs at least 17 times in chapters 39 and 40. And it's really, it's it's the, um, back in 35 verse 1, it's the, 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 um, the, declarative sort of subject sentence of this whole ending part of Exodus that the people now come and do precisely what God has commanded of them. Don't let it 
get lost on you that every detail of the worship of God here with the tabernacle, every detail is done just as God commanded. So the bases were laid according to God's command, and the frames were set up and the poles were raised just as the Lord commanded, that the tent was spread and the covering for the tent just as the Lord commanded, that the ark was, had, had the testimonies put in it and the mercy seat put on it just as the Lord commanded. And the incense was set up and the oil was created and then the veil was set up and the table arranged and the bread put on it just as the Lord commanded. Everything down to the very nitty gritty detail. Everything just as the Lord commanded. And, and our, our modern day sentiments really are going to say, you know, this seems like overkill, doesn't it? I mean, really, is he this micromanaging of his people? Is this really that important for him to get every little placement correct? Does it really matter where the table goes as long as it's in the room? Yes, of course it does. Another commentator says, we are too prone to regard the word of God, which is his command, is it not? When he commands Moses, it's his word of command to him. It's the same thing as this to us. This commentator says, we are too prone to regard the word of God as insufficient for the most minute details of his worship and service. He says, indeed, it seems to be one of the hardest things to bring modes of worship under scrutiny, especially those that are hallowed by long tradition. It's difficult, he says, to ask seriously whether any of our, whether our traditions have any sanction from the Bible. Now, this is what I want you to hear. It is, this man writes, a plain derivative of this concluding section of Exodus that the Lord is to be worshipped only as he directs and allows. That was the problem of, the ex, of, of Exodus 32, of the golden bull. That they sought to worship him in a way that was not sanctioned. That he did not prescribe for them. That was their great sin. Was not abiding by God's word. Of growing impatient with him and doing things their way. And now in these final chapters of Exodus, it is I mean, basically yelled by the author at us with these, these peppered punctuations of this refrain over and over and over again no god is to be worshiped as he commands you know we no longer worship by the tabernacle or by the temple but the principle still remains we come to god not as we choose but as he directs right not with our own imaginations but with his specific prescriptions god directs not how we prefer Normally, this principle is applied in preaching. You know, you often hear sermons on the regulative principle or on the second commandment, and your preacher is going to say, not your preacher, sorry, I'm not talking about Tim, um, a preacher, hypothetical preacher out there. You know, so make sure that your worship aligns with Scripture. That's a great preaching principle from this text. But given that we worship, in my estimation, according to this biblical principle already, I want to challenge you to think about it in a different way. Is your heart in it when we worship? And I don't mean that in any kind of like, you know, hippy-dippy kind of like get in touch with your emotions kind of way. Don't mean to offend anybody with that phrase. I apologize. Is your heart really leaning toward God in our worship? You know, we may get all of the things right in our list of, of elements. All of this is what God has told us to do as we worship Him. 
But are you really, are you truly coming to God as we worship Him? In Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet is praying, sort of on behalf of the people, confessing the sin of the nation before the Lord. And he says in Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You may know the more common, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. He's not saying that God's people can't do good things. We can. He is saying that, that the people in their worship have become faithless. So that even those righteously appearing things are just rotten on the inside because they're coming with wrong hearts. That it's possible to go through the right motions of worship, but, but just have rotten things on the inside while you're doing it. And it means nothing. In fact, he says it's as polluted garments. When we treat worship like, like um, a perfunctory ritual, where we're just going through the motions and our hearts are insincere. You know, worship feels dry sometimes. doesn't matter how much time Tim or I may spend on our order of worship and, and the, the hymns that we pick out, right? Sometimes it's going to be, well, I don't know this song or I don't like this song. This prayer's too dull or too long. This preacher's too long-winded. We may find many reasons to be unsatisfied with worship. But what we are doing is what God has commanded us to do. And he will bless it to our good and to his glory and praise when we come and do it by faith believing. Worship begins by dispensing of yourself and trusting that Christ has made the way open to God. And that God has commanded to us the proper way of worshiping him. And so this means that when we, when we are truly worshiping, the Lord receives blessing from us regardless of the singability of the tune or the eloquence of the minister. Because we are coming to God through Christ, which is the way that he has established for us. Not in our own imaginations, not in our own ways, but as the Lord commanded It's a blessing that God has made these ways clear to us. Ask yourself if your heart is in it, if you're seeking the Lord through Christ, through these means, and ask him to, to, to open your eyes to see the beauty of his worship, dull as it may seem and feel at times, right? Ask him to help you, and he will. He promises to bless these paths that we walk, and he will. Lastly, as we close, verse 33. He erected the court of the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. You know, and in a sense, Moses' work was finished. In that the tabernacle's done, it's completed. It's, he's, he's looking at it. But in another sense... His work is not yet finished at all. As good as it is, this climactic point of exodus, this worship that is instituted by God is still lacking something. 
You know, if you go through and read the scriptures, you can see the progression of worship over time and testament. So that Eden was God's sanctuary for a little while. And in a sense, Mount Sinai became his sanctuary for a little while in Exodus when he declared himself unto Moses. Now this movable tent has become the place where God will meet with his people. And it will later be replaced by the temple in Jerusalem when Solomon constructs it. One man writes that at each stage, the relationship between God and his people was marred by human sin. You know, these, these flawed means of worship, and even still, our worship is not full and complete yet. It's true. We come tonight, we came this morning, and we worship the true and living God, and he is here among his people. But there is still something that will not be in glory, and that is our sin and our wickedness and our frailty and our inability to perceive Him as He really, truly always is. But one day, because of what Christ has done for us, one day this will all change. Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And later on in that chapter, in verse 22, he's, he's talking about the city. He says, and I saw no temple in the city, which really ought to perk up our ears. We go, well, if it's heaven, isn't there a place to worship God? I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light... Will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God does not change, neither does his worship or the requirements of it. We come to him through Christ, our mediator, and by his grace, one day we will enter into that heavenly city and worship God unceasingly without a trace of sin to speak of. And what a glorious day that will be. Praise our Savior for what he has done in bringing us to glory in the end. Amen. Father, come and, and write the truth of your word upon our hearts for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we may not sin against you. We love you, Lord. We are eager for that day when worship will not cease. And we thank you that you have established means for us to worship you in the interim. Come, O oh Lord, and bless so that you may be praised and adored. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.